This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, an online journal of economics, politics, and culture, published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. In this 11th installment of our series on liberalism, Benjamin Klutzi, the Director of Academic Outreach here at Mercatus, has a conversation with John Inazu to discuss what changes in constitutional rules and interpersonal norms can be more effective at better fostering patient, tolerant, and intellectually humble conversations. Inazu is the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion and Professor of Political Science at Washington University in St. Louis School of Law. He specializes in First Amendment freedoms of speech, assembly, and religion, and related questions of legal and political theory. His books include Liberty's Refuge, The Forgotten Freedom of Assembly, and Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. He's also the executive director of the Carver Project, an organization that empowers Christian faculty and students to serve and connect to university, church, and society. The audio, as well as the transcript of this conversation, has been slightly edited for clarity. Today's conversation is about pluralism, uh, as you know, uh, how to coexist with people of different backgrounds, creeds, ideologies, and viewpoints. It is an essential concept and value to understand if we want to live peacefully within a liberal democracy. Let's start off with some terminology. Uh, what do you mean by confident pluralism? And how is it different from what do you call the fact of pluralism? Sure. So thanks. We can think of pluralism in a couple of different ways. One is descriptively, what does the world look like? And that's where the term really comes from John Rawls, who talks about the fact of pluralism, that we live in a deeply divided society where people have different views about ultimate things and things that matter. And then separate from that is the question of what do we do about that? And so the theory of pluralism as a normative matter is a, is a political response to the fact of pluralism and difference in our society. And the idea of confident pluralism, the way I try to frame it, is to say we need to first acknowledge the reality and the depths of our differences, not mitigating or putting aside those differences, but actually embracing the depths of the differences. That's the confidence part. And only then can we actually engage together in the shared project of pluralism by living across those differences and finding common ground. That's really interesting. Now, when I was reading your, your book, it seemed to me that you're saying we need to abandon our quest for this abstract concept of oneness or the idealism of e pluribus unum, you know, if we want to seek confident pluralism. You know, you seem to say we should seek a more modest version of unity. And this also reminds me of a previous conversation that we had on this podcast with Professor Danielle Allen at Harvard University, who contrasted wholeness and oneness in her book, Talking to Strangers, and that Again, the idea is that oneness is, is an elusive quest. So can you go a bit deeper into, into what you mean by modest unity? Sure. You know, I think we have some aspirational language in our founding documents and our public lore that pushes us to this idea of a more perfect union or, or the, the suggestion that we're going to come together out of many one. And part of, I think, the acknowledging the reality of our differences does is to remind us that the common ground we will eventually find will be inherently limited, that we're actually not seeking perfect unity or perfect union, but we're seeking out of the differences, a, a shared sense of 
politics together. And it might be, depending on how deep those differences run, it might be actually quite a limited version. So that's when I talk about a modest unity. I'm talking about what is the common ground that we can find at a practical level that holds us together as a common people and a common political entity that doesn't pursue narratives and ideas that are not going to be readily attainable. So here's one example. When we talk about common good language, what's the common good of the country? That becomes a very elusive term to try to define when we disagree about really important and fundamental matters. If we disagree across this country about the purpose of the country or what it means to be a human being or what it means to pursue human flourishing, it's very hard out of those differences to name the common good. So rather than that, rather than pursuing those kinds of projects, I'm suggesting we start with with something quite more modest that that looks at common ground, even and perhaps especially when we cannot name a shared common good. Yeah, and that was going to be my next question. You know that uh, you know saying that we we lack agreement on the on the purpose of the country, you know the nature of the common good and, and the meaning of human flourishing and all these things. Uh, if we lack these things. Is it even possible to, to work towards a modest unity? Well, I think, I think it has to be, right? So I start off the, the Confident Pluralism book with a, a quote from Rousseau, who says, it's impossible for men to live at peace with those they think are damned. And I, I think for all of our sakes, Rousseau has to be wrong, that we actually have to find a way to live at peace with those all the way, including those who we think are damned or those we think that are fundamentally living on this earth with viewpoints and perspectives and beliefs that we find not only wrong and misguided, but in some cases abhorrent. And we've got to figure out a way to find that mutual modest unity in spite of those differences. And here's where I think on a very practical level, this is possible. Most of us live and breathe and work and play with people who hold quite different views than our own. And when we, if we got everyone in a room and a, you know, a typical, city block or classroom or workplace, and we pushed hard on what our differences are, we would be surprised at how much we disagree over really important things. And yet we still find very practical ways to get things done, to live life together. We find a shared humanity in the people across the table from us. And so I think focusing on those everyday activities and those common ground initiatives can get us a long way. It might not get us all the way. So we might end up saying, it's going to be really hard to collaborate with the neo-Nazis. But I think our impulse is to put everybody who disagrees with us into that category of the neo-Nazis. And that actually is not, I think, a very big category in reality. That in, in, in reality, most of us can find ways to partner across deep disagreement with other people because we recognize the shared humanity and we recognize our common interests in those people. So we, we definitely have to have to find a way. Now, I wonder if we talk about deep divisions in the country, I wonder if some of it is exaggerated. Are we truly divided or um, it's a it's a perception game? Well, I think it's a mixed bag there. I think social media, for example, exacerbates our differences and gives outsized influence to the most partisan and most extreme among us. So if you live your life on social media, you're going to experience perhaps more division and polarization than is actually there. 
But the problem is increasingly people are spending a lot of their time on social media. And so the, the perception becomes the reality. And over time, those entrenched views of polarized difference are going to creep in. And so I think there's a cautionary tale that uh, what we take in and what we consume will ultimately shape and define who we are and how we see the world. Um, I also think, though, that some of our deep differences really are there and really always have been there. And, And so there's a way in which a previous era assumed a kind of consensus that probably wasn't there. And by politically or culturally or economically denying the ability of certain voices to be heard, whether it was people of different races, women, other other people who found themselves in minority categories, when those voices just weren't listened to or heard, it was very easy to assume a kind of consensus or unity that wasn't actually there. And so now that we find ourselves in in an era where more voices are being heard, we're seeing pressure put on the unity and the consensus narrative, probably in in really good ways to expose the disagreements we've always had. Uh, But it does mean that those efforts to find unity are going to be far more complicated. Yeah, that's really interesting. So there are things that are now coming to the fore that were glossed over, it seems, sometimes. Digging a little bit deeper into the, the concept of confident pluralism, you, you note that it's a concept that is grounded in two key premises, uh, inclusion and uh, dissent. That as we grow as a society, we want to include more people who were previously excluded. Um, at the same time, we have to also allow for people to dissent uh, from the status quo and or the way that things are changing. And it, it seems to me that these two premises will be in perpetual tension because the more inclusivity that you, you, you seek, it is likely that you wouldn't like all the dissent that is going on. And the more you see dissent, you know, it, it creates, it creates all, all these sort of uh, tensions. So are they, I wonder which is the salient of the two mm-hmm. or, or, or do they sort of uh, reinforce each other? Right. No, I think you're exactly right to name a, a kind of inherent tension between the two, but I think there are ways to mitigate against that tension in, in many contexts. So let's start with the idea of inclusion. And in confident pluralism, I focus on notions of equality of opportunity and suggest that people need to have basic human needs met before they can even realistically talk about what it means to engage across difference. If you go a few miles from my house into some of the poor neighborhoods of St. Louis, it's not going to make any sense to walk up to someone and say, let's talk about our deepest differences because the person is going to respond with, let's talk about access to healthcare or basic education or things like that. And so we have to be able to resolve these basic fundamental needs first. The problem is that a push for inclusion or a kind of equality of opportunity can quickly become a push for undifferentiated notions of equality that are very difficult to make sense of. So when, when equality of opportunity becomes equality based on my terms and how I understand it, it can swallow everything. And so if, if my version of equality says discrimination is always wrong, for example, that, that doesn't sufficiently account for the way we actually operate in the world. We, we discriminate in all kinds of ways. So sports teams discriminate against bad athletes and choirs discriminate against poor singers and so forth. We go on and on. And so the groups that we form 
in society that are that are based on distinctions and different forms of discrimination do not answer the normative or moral question of which kinds are good or bad. And so that's when we get to dissent then. And the dissent premise that I explore suggests that in the private groups of civil society, we have to have a very capacious understanding of dissent. And there will be limits. There are always limits to pluralism in any form of political theory, such that the the local chapter of Al-Qaeda is not going to be able to exist, right? And we as a society are going to prohibit certain groups that are just beyond the pale. But we ought to think very carefully about what those groups are and push the limits of dissent as far as we can. And in doing so, and this goes back to your initial point, there will be tension between those who want to pursue a more robust version of inclusion and those who want to pursue a more robust version of dissent and holding those two together and maximizing both of those spaces is part of the, the normative project that I'm, I'm arguing for. That's great. So we can also have confident pluralism in our society via two categories, uh, as you say in your book. One, constitutional commitments, and two, civic practices. Can you unpack those two categories for us? Sure. So essentially, I'm trying to set up the idea that we, in order to make this project of living together across our deepest differences work, we're going to need both legal, structural, constitutional reforms and civic personal reforms. And the first point is is really grounded in the aspirations and to some extent unrealized norms of the First Amendment, the idea that protections for groups through associational rights or the right of assembly matter deeply to the way that we live in society, that the government is required to honor the public forum, meaning the spaces that the government provides for us to express our differences, to protest, to be in public places, expressing our own dissenting non-governmental views about things that matter. And to some extent, the government also provides forms of funding or subsidies through tax exemptions and other programs and initiatives to facilitate this kind of pluralism and diversity among the private groups of civil society. And the constitutional argument in confident pluralism is that these protections are absolutely necessary and they're also in many ways underprotected by the current Supreme Court's approach to constitutional law in the First Amendment. So there's some there's a serious call for reform in that part of the book. And then the second part of the book is is where I focus on civic aspirations, the idea that most of us in our day-to-day and hour-to-hour are not making constitutional law, but we are engaging as citizens and neighbors with one another. And there when it turns out the law actually gives us a lot of latitude in how we engage with each other, it's on us to treat others in a way that makes our differences and our ability to live with our differences possible. And so I talk about civic aspirations and the need to make these concrete in the lives of people. And I call them aspirations because uh, I, I worry that we don't actually have instilled practices uh, at a broad level right now in our society. And so we need to aspire toward those practices and we need to find the institutions that can help us cultivate those practices in individual human beings. Yeah. And it seems like that's sort of a matter of culture when it comes to civic aspirations and how we conduct ourselves. Again, the, the question of which one is more 
relevant? You know, both are important. Obviously, constitutional protections are important, but which one, you know, sort of stands the test of time more? Maybe both. I'm not sure what the right answer is, but what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think we absolutely need both. I mean, so absent robust First Amendment constitutional protections, we lose the civil liberties frame that has made this country unique and that allows for the kind of political engagement that we say we want and we say we have. We haven't always honored this well. And there there are countless examples from American history where the rights of groups, the protections of protests, especially for non-majoritarian groups, have been significantly curtailed by courts and legislators and political actors. And and so in some ways, the constitutional side is necessarily aspirational as well. But we have to maintain those constitutional protections or none of this is going to work. And then we also need people who are, uh, who you might say, live up to the promise of those protections or the promise offered by those protections who are caring about things like citizenship and and pursuing the shared political project. And so I talk about the need to pursue humility, patience, and tolerance in our own lives and our own relationships. And without a people who are formed through those aspirations and eventually those practices, the right constitutional framework isn't going to matter because you're not going to have people who understand its importance or how to take advantage of it in a, in a positive political and relational way. And so I think they're both absolutely essential. I don't, I don't think the idea of confident pluralism or really any version of pluralism that tries to address the fact of our differences is going to succeed without both legal and civic reforms and efforts and commitments. Right. And still on the constitutional requirements, you do spend a lot of time on, you know, the freedom of assembly. Is that the most important of the constitutional commitments? Well, it's interesting. I mean, part of the reason that I frame my consideration of constitutional commitments around the right of assembly is that it flows from the core of my scholarly work. So my first book was on the right of assembly and was kind of an excavation of what that right is, why it's been ignored through most of American history and what its potential resources are. And one of the points that I make in in that first book called Liberty's Refuge is that the right of assembly is the one individual right in the First Amendment that requires more than one person to be exercised. So the First Amendment has five individual rights, speech, press, petition, religion, and assembly. And I can do any of the other four on my own. Many of them happen to occur in groups or institutions, but I could do them all on my own. I can speak by myself. I could petition the government alone in some face. I can practice religion alone. I can start a blog and be the press by myself but I can't assemble alone. The very nature of the word means that I need at least one other person to assemble with me. And so the argument I make in Liberty's Refuge is that means there's a relational dimension to the individual rights in the First Amendment, that it's not just about how we exist in society as autonomous individuals, but that it matters that we are relational beings who form groups and who do things together, including assembling and all that follows from assembly. So in some ways, When I think about the constitutional commitments that we need for confident pluralism, absolutely assembly is at the core or or the theoretical core of of that constellation of rights. Now, how that plays out in actual doctrine, 
I don't know. The Supreme Court has sort of ignored assembly for decades, although there's a case this term, Americans for Prosperity, that is considering anew perhaps the grounding of associational rights and the and the Supreme Court during oral arguments asked some questions about the right of assembly. So I maintain some some hope that someday we might actually return to this fundamental anchor right. But but whether we do or not as a matter of doctrine, I think the the normative underpinnings of what the founders meant by the right of assembly and how that right has been used and exercised throughout American history is going to need to play an important part of our contemporary constitutional commitments. The constitutional commitments uh, are paramount, uh, as you say, to having a pluralistic society. But we also need certain civic aspirations, as you have noted as well, humility, tolerance, and patience. Now, in the book, you, you have a very interesting way of illustrating how these aspirations come together. Can you talk about the relationship between Jerry and Larry and, and how did they illustrate civic aspirations? Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. I, you know, so I, I introduced these aspirations through these two characters, Jerry and Larry, and describe how each of them might embody at a very practical level what it means to be humble and patient and tolerant across difference. And then later in the book, I reveal that these are two actual people, characters in the full sense of the word, who had a relationship with one another, Jerry Falwell and Larry Flint. And so quite famously, Falwell, the fire and brimstone fundamentalist preacher, and Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler magazine, sort of first found each other through a lawsuit where Larry Flint had published a, you know, a, a pretty demeaning advertisement that took on Jerry Falwell and really Jerry Falwell's mom, to be precise, uh, and led to a, a famous Supreme Court opinion about the reaches of parody and the limits of defamation law and had the two spending lots of money against each other in a very adversarial and acrimonious context. Uh, And then sometime subsequent to that lawsuit, Falwell reached out to Flint and they went on some talk shows together to talk about the lawsuit and related ideas of free speech. And eventually they actually formed this very odd, but very genuine friendship where the fundamentalist preacher and the pornography publisher started visiting each other trying to convert each other to their various ways of life, trying to explain why their view was right. And, you know, neither persuaded the other, but they did actually end up with a friendship that was based on shared experiences and common interests and, and in some ways shared backgrounds, despite their profound differences. And, and so one of the points that I make in telling that story in Confident Pluralism is if those two guys can do it, <laughs> Maybe there's some hope for the rest of us because neither of those guys is a very exemplary human being. I mean, in some ways, both of them have tremendous flaws and blind spots. And, you know, I would not want my kids modeling either one of them, but they did find this way to to discover this incredible friendship across incredible differences. And I think in that way, there's something to model for the rest of us. And where they practicing, you know, tolerance, humility, and, and patience throughout all of their uh, discourse and, and uh, engagements. Yeah, well, and I, you know, I don't know if throughout all of them, but they, but they <laughs> definitely had at least some possibilities of those aspirations enacted through their lives. I mean, you can't, you can't get to a point of common ground starting from that much difference, that much animosity, without being willing to set aside some of the rhetoric, some of the walls, 
some of the distrust and and pursuing in humility, patience, and tolerance a, a kind of unexpected relationship. And you know, as I as I say that, I think a lot of this really does come down to the importance of trust. Do we trust the people around us, even those who don't share our views, uh, or do we inherently distrust? And do we place all kinds of other labels and expectations on people because we distrust them? And so I think pursuing this hopeful trust in other people is part of the puzzle. And that that also entails risk. Not everybody you trust is going to return that trust. So part of the effort and the initiative to find common ground across difference means that if you're serious about it, you're probably going to be hurt by some people not returning the effort. And that's okay. But we need more of us who are willing to take those risks and absorb those hurts than, than choosing the alternative of either withdrawing completely from difference or trying to crush difference through sheer political power. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting, especially how you sort of doing the internal work to set those things aside in ourselves and then facilitating our conversation partners to, to do the same sounds incredibly challenging. Do you have any, any tips for us. Well, you know, I think that's where the, the confidence part of confident pluralism comes into play, which is to say, if you really are confident about your own beliefs, that you're right about important things that matter, or at least, if not certain, that you're at least trusting that your understanding of the world is how you're supposed to live your life, then you should, of all people, be able and willing to take some of those risks across difference. Uh, you know, if, if you're confident, then expose your views to challenge and be willing to accept critiques from other people. Uh, and I think, you know, in some ways, I teach in a law school, and, and in many ways, teaching law students is a wonderful reminder and opportunity to convey the opportunity to get the best possible arguments from the other side. We read majority and dissenting opinions. We look at really hard issues that really smart people disagree about. And we just day after day talk about understanding as deeply as possible what those two, two opposite sides think about these important issues. And the more that we can expose ourselves to charitable readings of the other side, the more that we can understand the weaknesses of our own side, the better off we'll be in pursuing these kinds of relationships across difference. And when it comes to the really important issues that matter in life, it's seldom the case that there's an easy answer. The reason we disagree is that really smart and really well-intentioned people have differing views about hard issues. Now, that's not the case in an unlimited sense, right? At the end of the day, you and I are going to say that the neo-Nazi is just wrong. And that it's just not a hard issue to say that people of all races should be treated as equal human beings. So we're right. going to have our limits, right? We're going to have our limits. But within those limits, we should be able to recognize the complexity of deep disagreements, the, even the ones that matter the most. Yeah. And you mentioned risk earlier. I just wonder, because in our current context right now with, you know, deplatforming and, and, and canceling, I wonder if people will be more willing to take risks and be confident about their views when they know that the wrong thing that is said or something that may not be said in the right way might lead to, you know, loss of, of, of a job or a career and that type of thing. I think that creates additional challenges. I think this is a really important issue. And it's the issue is that we have to create places 
and opportunities and relationships where people can make mistakes. And that goes back to the the, the element of trust. We have to trust other people to mm. make us better and to help us with our arguments and our understanding. And that means almost by definition, it means we're going to get things wrong. It's another element of teaching or being in the classroom where I, I mean, the reason I have students learning from me is they don't actually know what I'm trying to teach them. And in the effort to know and understand it at a deeper level, they're going to make mistakes and that's okay. But when those mistakes, you know, the kind of um, unnuanced classroom comment or the abrasive tone that comes up in a discussion when you're experiencing something for the first time, when that's no longer just part of the classroom, but now it's plastered on social media or held against you forever in perpetuity, that makes it very hard for people to, to try things out and to try to come to deeper understandings because they're understandably gun shy about making any kind of mistake. And I, so I think that we need places, we need two kinds of places. We need actually, and, and something that's quite interesting to me is on the political left and the political right, the idea that we need opportunities to be with our people where we, can, we don't have to worry about what we're saying or how we're saying it. The people on the left call these safe spaces. People on the right call these associational freedoms. They're the same thing in many contexts, right? People need to be with the people they trust the most, where they don't have to be performative, where they don't have to risk what they're going to say being misconstrued, where, where they're in the most deepest and trusted friendships that they can explore hard questions and uncertainties. And then people also need to be in places like classrooms or public forums or political debates where they're able to engage across difference, sometimes in new and unanticipated ways. And in those settings, be able to make mistakes. Look, I think if you, if you say something dumb, you should be able to apologize for it. You should be right. able to say, I actually, I have come to a different understanding mm-hmm. and let me rephrase or let me say it again. And the problem is, you know, nowadays, if you tweet something dumb, it's game over, right? No one cares about the follow-up or the, or the and I, I think rather than think of this as damage control or, or brand salvaging, we should think of it as human beings trying to express ourselves better and more charitably over time. And I think if we, if we gave each other more grace, we could all do it a little better and, and in that, we'd also then have to set aside the people who actually have no intention of trying to do it any better, right? The, the people who are deliberately the, the provoking voices, the voices that want to stir the pot and say things that are, are mean and outlandish and emotionally uh, laden. And, and I think we just have to work hard to minimize those voices, uh, the people who don't actually care about Mm-hmm. pursuing discourse across difference, but are just trying to gain attention or hurt people or, or make a name for themselves. Now, living speech, um, that's a concept you talk about uh, as a necessary aspect of the aspirational uh, civic virtues. What is living speech and, and why is it so important? Yeah, you know, I take this term from uh, the professor James Boyd White at Michigan, who's got a a beautiful book with the title Living Speech and has also written eloquently in other contexts as well. And I mean, the simplified idea, as I'm trying to convey it in confident pluralism, is the notion that the words we use have the potential and the power to create and give life to people and worlds and dreams and imaginations. And they also have the power to destroy and kill and deaden lives. And 
well, I'm not trying to equate words with actual violence here. So I, I do think there is a violent component to our language, but it's not the same as physical violence against someone. But but our words do harm and can harm at a very deep level. So I mentioned in Confident Pluralism that one of the greatest lies we've all learned is sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Because of course, right. words hurt us at, at very deep and destructive levels and the playground insults that I got in third grade are still rattling around <laughs> in my head in some places. And, and so these words, we have so much power in language and in our words to others, and we can choose to pursue those words that form living speech rather than those words that destroy or demean the people around us. Words, words are powerful, but unfortunately it's the people who use the most uh, provocative language, they tend to get the most clicks and the most attention. I wonder if there's sort of a way to to deal with that and get the, well, the sort of a, a more attention towards, you know, living speech. <laughs> well, this is the real problem. And it's a problem that reflects ultimately not who those people are, but who we are, right? We are the consumers who make the clicks. That's right. And we are the people who create the markets that allow those voices to be platformed and the incentives that create entire media operations and book sales and agents and movies around those voices, because that's what sells. It's very, you know, it's very unappealing to talk up, to give a nuanced perspective on a hard issue or to avoid a hot take. The hot take is what gives you attention. And so you're raising a very serious and profound, but also very hard question, which is what do we do to to curtail these tendencies of platforming the loudest voices? And it's a hard question because those are our tendencies. Uh, I, I don't actually know if it's going to be possible on or within social media. So I do think part of the solution or the remedy for us is to figure out ways to get offline and to um, I'm not saying that all of social media is bad, but I, I think unless we set limits for ourselves, both in our mode of engagement and our frequency of consuming online material, we're just going to be formed in ways that reward the dopamine hits from the hot takes and prevent us from thinking more carefully from listening to quieter voices that are perhaps more nuanced, more thoughtful, more reasoned, from listening to voices that don't share some of our normative priors, but have a lot to teach us. And the only way we're going to get to those kinds of voices and conversations is to mitigate the impulses that come from the hot takes. And, and I just don't know how we do that if we try to do all of this online. So, right. so get, get offline and find other ways <laughs> to read and to have conversations mm -hmm. with real people. Right, right. It's, it's a tough challenge. Now, collective action, right? Protests, mm -hmm. boycotts, and strikes. We often see them as you know, useful ways to challenge the status quo and, and advance policy change you know, towards more inclusion. Are there ways in which you know, these collective actions challenge confident pluralism? Yeah, you know, so the, ch the chapter I wrote on collective action was by far the hardest theoretical one for me to write. And it's because of the reason you just pointed to, which is on the one hand, forms of collective action, and especially when we think about protests or strikes or those sorts of things or boycotts, are, are massively important, uh, both in terms of what should and is protected by the First Amendment and also historically, those actions that affect social change and the kind of movement 
politics that we've actually seen make a difference throughout American history and other parts of the world. And so those forms of collective action are important. They amplify voices. They, in some ways, reflect the aspirations and the ideals that I'm talking about. The hard thing becomes when we turn those forms of collective action, not against the government or powerful corporations or whoever it is, but when we turn it against our fellow citizens and we say, our objective is to stigmatize you to the point of putting you outside the bounds of polite discourse. And so we see, we can see this, you know, in in online examples where people try to ratio or go after somebody who's, who they don't, they no longer want as part of the conversation. We see it in offline examples with some kinds of boycotts or protests and the challenge, the theoretical challenge, which is also, I think a political one is how do we think about engaging with our neighbors even as a collective in a way that still recognizes their humanity, their ability to ultimately disagree with us, maybe not to come around to our position, but in a way that that recognizes also the reality of power and politics that might complicate some of those relationships. And so when I think about a boycott, you know, like in the civil rights era where you had uh, African-Americans boycotting and challenging white business owners who were controlling the economic and social conditions of cities in the South. Uh, In some ways, you might think of those boycotts as coercive and lacking in a form of patience. And that's probably right. But also given the power imbalance, sometimes impatient politics is the right way to go. And so I I think maybe if, if maybe more than anything, the presence and possibility of collective action suggests that our civic aspirations of humility, patience, and tolerance are not going to be cookie cutter templates, but are going to be worked out in actual lived situations on the ground that account for the reality of politics and the reality of power. And sometimes those aspirations might actually lead us to forms of collective action that minimize or at least set aside concepts or aspirations like patience. Um, but I think the the problem is if we ignore them completely, if we think that the ends always justify the means, that in our efforts of collective action, we risk losing the shared bonds of civil neighborliness that could ultimately sustain a kind of common ground across difference. Can you talk about the the common ground imperative? Yeah, you know, so as I say in Confident Pluralism, we have to be able to find common ground even when we disagree on the common good. And the idea here is that we've got to figure out a way to live practically in society with those people who are different from us. The alternatives, I think, are either an extreme seclusion and avoidance, which ultimately I think is not a form of politics. It's more just sort of coexisting in in similar geographic spaces or a form of power politics that just tries to win. I mean, if you can get the most votes and the most control and the people with the guns, then good luck holding on to it. And that's maybe how you win. And so the idea of common ground through confident pluralism is that we have to, we have to avoid both of those alternatives. And I think it's possible. I mean, I'm most encouraged when I see 
politics happening at the local level when when people actually have to fix the road or mm-hmm. you know help the local school or look at serious criminal justice reform at the local level that that does require these common ground efforts and then we discover that we actually do have a great deal in common it's complicated when we in the first instance sort ourselves only with the people like us so i mentioned a minute ago that it is important to have our own groups, our safe spaces, our own private associations. Absolutely, I believe in those and the importance of those protections. But if we sort ourselves too exclusively, then we actually just have a kind of seclusion. So when all the people in blue states live in blue states and all the people in red states live in red states and there's our cities and our neighborhoods become politically segregated, even our colleges and workplaces, then we risk a kind of echo chamber existence that doesn't actually lead us to common ground politics. It just convinces us that our view of politics is the only plausible or reasonable one and everybody else is just fundamentally misguided. And and with that view, it becomes very hard actually to find common ground. Right. And yet it seems as as though our world is uh, becoming easier for us to sort ourselves into various groups and and various echo chambers and, and stay there unfortunately, which which poses uh, quite a bit of challenge. And we've also heard from uh, previous guests who've also looked at the issue that it seems like uh, at the local level, there is less polarization and people actually do get together to, to get things done. I'm hoping that we can find ways to sort of replicate that type of, of effort or, or scale that, that type of effort. Well, I think that's, I mean, that's certainly consistent with what I've seen, but notice that it has to be kind of a bottom-up approach rather than a top-down approach. We're, we're not going to fix right. Washington and have a bunch of, you know, overnight exemplars showing us how to how it's done. That's not going to happen. And so we've got to show them and we've got to start in local neighborhoods mm-hmm. uh, with actual relationships. And, and there's a lot of work to do at the local level too. So, uh, you know, with just in terms of racial divides in my city and some of the political differences. I don't think we can assume that even these common ground efforts are just going to happen. So I'm often asking, what are the actual institutions that can help bring people into relationship across difference? I hope that it's schools. I hope that it's universities. I hope that it's churches working together and, and other religious organizations working in interfaith contexts. I hope that it's libraries that offer robust public programming and other mm-hmm. neighborhood associations. And in some ways, you know, there's a sense in which all of that list of institutions I just gave could be dismissed as hopelessly naive or outdated, but I don't think so. I think actually if we invest locally, if we prioritize the face-to-face relationships over the online ones, then we have a real possibility of, of finding this kind of common ground. Right. I was wondering whether you would reflect a little bit, maybe personally, because in your book, you talk about your grandfather, who was part of the the people who were placed in internment camps. And uh, coming out of that, you know, losing that sense of belonging. And I'm wondering how that story shaped your thinking about pluralism. And I'm also curious to see how you, you, you stay positive about uh, these types of things, given given that type of experience. Yeah, you know, thanks for mentioning that. It was both of my grandparents were interned at Manzanar, and then my dad was born in those camps in 1943. And then shortly thereafter, the whole family was transferred to Tule Lake, which was a, a higher security place because they had 
my grandfather, who was an American citizen and born in this country, had asked why citizens were being arrested and incarcerated. Uh, and so it was obviously a, a deeply painful experience for for my family and to have my dad then raised in poverty and in many ways to miss out on the opportunities that the country had had promised. And but one of the takeaways for me, though, is that as somebody who works in constitutional law and civil liberties in the First Amendment, I, I never want to have and I don't have too much trust in the government or the people with the power, because not that long ago, the people with the power turned pretty quickly on, on my people. And, and uh, you know, others have certainly experienced that or continue to experience that reality. Uh, and so I think it is a cautious reminder to all of us that, that power can be used for good, but power can obviously be quickly abused and that, even the best forms of government and the best laid plans can be hijacked by fear or by self-interest or by other other vices and and so i think about that quite a bit when i think about navigating civil liberties and constitutional rights and i you know i have a suspicion of all kinds of governmental actors regardless of political party i i can see the ways in which uh, power and abuses can often go hand in hand uh, and so then you asked, you know, what out of that, where do I find kind of hope or optimism? And, you know, a big thing for me is when, when I talk to especially younger people, when I talk to millennials and Gen Z types who've been raised more often than not in a more pluralistic culture, that's not the case for everybody, but certainly with the university students that I encounter, for example, they they get the experience of pluralism and difference more intuitively than say people raised a couple generations ago who were in some ways much more homogenous. And so the 20 somethings who are navigating this difference, when they think about it thoughtfully and when they recognize what's at stake and giving room for other people to make arguments and other people to live different lives, then I do have optimism in, in what's to come. Now there are tremendous challenges on that mindset there's a lack of role models from older generations right now. There's a lack of healthy institutions that's exacerbated by a distrust of institutions, especially from younger people. And there's a cultural vibe that exists with social media and other platforms that minimizes or discourages actually pursuing inquiry and deep difference and understanding of other perspectives. And and so I don't think it's that the challenges are absent or unmitigated, but I do think that the very best of the 20 somethings that I see who are pursuing those challenges have a great deal of confidence and and give me a great deal of confidence. Your article, uh, The Purpose and Limits of the University, this was from a couple of years ago. You you write that today, and I'm quoting, uh, academic disciplines fracture around ideology and methodology, and they increasingly lack the shared linguistic resources, even for internal, let alone cross-disciplinary dialogue. What's your advice for faculty and university leaders? Um, you said that the purpose of the university is to be a place for constrained disagreement, uh, which I really like that, and I think you, you borrow that from um, uh, McIntyre. How can university professors and leaders foster con- constrained disagreement? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a lot of work to be done here. And and maybe it starts with the premise that the modern university, and especially, you know, the big research universities, my institution, uh, has a tremendous amount of 
privilege and wealth and power and needs to be thinking about how to steward that well uh, and not just out of self-interest. And the problem with the modern university today is that most schools are largely fungible in what they do because they don't actually have a clear sense of purpose uh, that's attached to, say, their local region or a mission or set of values. So every school in the absence of a, of a collective purpose or clear set of values introduces ideas like excellence and success and world-changing justice and all of these vacuous terms that don't actually <laughs> amount to anything. And in the absence of anything particularized, the loudest voices often fill the room or individual faculty interests that aren't willing to sacrifice for a shared endeavor drive university agendas or wealthy donors or student interest groups. And uh, in some cases with public institutions, the state legislatures. And 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 when all of these actors trying to maximize their own self-interest without a clear understanding of what the purpose of the university is, we, we get these massively wealthy and powerful institutions that don't actually function toward many of their core purposes. And so you mentioned McIntyre's notion of the university as a place of constrained disagreement. Yes, if we if we aren't at a very basic level teaching undergraduates how to disagree well and how to form arguments and how to live, importantly, how to live with people who are different than them. If we're not doing that, then we're not even doing the most basic function of this amazingly privileged and wealthy institution that we're part of. And, and uh, you know, we don't deserve to keep it going. And, and so I, I hope that, that the university, or at least some universities, can recover or rediscover this aspect of what they're about. But it's going to take some setting of priorities that means winners and losers. It means that some faculty who care about this kind of thing are going to be better off than those who are doing their own agendas. It means that some wealthy donors will go uh, with their wishes unmet. It means that some students who want the university to be something other than it is might not discover it. But, But that sense of purpose, because it constrains, also creates opportunities as well as constraints. And I, and I just, I really hope that the university as an institution can head in more of that direction. Thanks for that response. I, I really do like the term constrained disagreement. I, I, I think it captures uh, a lot of what the university ought to, ought to do. Now, you're executive director, uh, you're also founder of, of uh, the Carver Project which is an interesting resource for groups, especially faith-based communities who are interested in fostering confident pluralism. Can you tell us about what uh, the Carver Project is? Yeah, you know, in in some ways, I think of the Carver Project as working out in practice the theory that I try to explain in confident pluralism. And the idea there is, can we start authentically with who we are and what differences we need to acknowledge. So in the case of the Carver Project, named after George Washington Carver, we're a group of Christian faculty at Washington University who love the university and also love the churches we're part of. And we want to see the connections strengthened between those institutions, the mutual distrust uh, lowered a bit. And we think we, we can help bridge some of those divides by being really good at what we do within the university. 
and as distinctively Christian scholars and teachers and researchers. And then because we can be clear and confident in who we are, we can find what those common ground initiatives are with those who are different than us. And at a place like Washington University or most major universities today, there are going to be plenty of people who are different than us on all sorts of dimensions. There, there won't be a, a takeover anytime soon of the Christian faculty at Washington University. But there is, I think, the opportunity for what the sociologist James Davison Hunter has called faithful presence. And the notion that this group of faculty, and we've got about 20 faculty fellows right now who meet together from across the disciplines, that we can partner generously with the university and in some ways help the university be better at its own named goals and aspirations. We can help with interdisciplinarity because we get together first as friends with a shared faith perspective and then take seriously what our different disciplines are. And we we discover classes that we teach together. I'm teaching a class now with a graphic designer and the intersection of law and graphic design on issues of race in St. Louis turns out to be a pretty fascinating set of issues for undergraduates to explore. Uh, I've got a colleague in the business school who found another friend in the English department and they're teaching a class together on markets and morals, learning uh, lessons of ethics and morality from works of literature for business students. And it's those kinds of, of discoveries and friendships and relationships that we find in the Carver Project. And then we want to we want to help model in some ways for the rest of the university, knowing that we're doing our efforts and we can find common ground in many cases and in other cases will be distinctively our own our own thing. That's really interesting. You're you're bridging uh, divides in, in practice. I typically end with a question about optimism and uh, whether you're optimistic about, uh, you know, opportunities to foster uh, confident pluralism. But it seems as though you've you've answered that in your you know, previous responses. I wanted to ask you about a call to action, whether, uh, you know, not just for professors, but but readers who pick up your book and are, are inspired by your concept of confident pluralism. What is your uh, call to action uh, to those readers? Hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Let me give two concrete and manageable challenges. The first I would say is do an audit of your social media. What are the sources you're intaking and how can you, one, diversify and two, limit the content? Because unless you do some serious work on social media, whatever it is, or maybe you're a Fox News person and you just watch television. Well, that needs an audit too. So whatever your media sources are, do an audit of it and ask how could they be more nuanced and more diverse. That's step one. Step two is find somebody and we're going to all have this opportunity increasingly, hopefully, as this as this virus recedes and as we return to in-person engagement, find somebody who is different than you in a meaningful respect and start a conversation but start the conversation around ordinary things. Don't just jump right into the hardest issue. Make sure you're actually pursuing a relationship for the sake of the relationship. Figure out what you like to eat together or a common activity before you jump into the the biggest hot button issue of the day and then see if that makes a difference in your life. I really like those. Um, Those are very too succinct and very powerful takeaways from, from your book. Professor Inazu, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate it. Ben, it's been a great discussion. Thanks so much for having me.
Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.